And I also should um, say that, especially, uh, well, I think this will please Nico, the fact that the industry is experiencing the rise of blockchain-powered gaming. All right. Yeah. It, it, we had to talk about it at some point, right? <laughs> <laughs> What is going on, listener? And welcome to episode 10 of the Metacast Roundtables. I'm your host, Nico, and today I'm joined by Anton Gorditsky, Aaron Bush, and Grigory Bortnik. And we also normally would have Florian on the show, but he's really sick today. So Florian, when you listen to this, please get well soon. We need you for your insights and your jokes and your weird game recommendation. So... In this episode, we will be discussing Ubisoft's new strategy. Uh, we'll also be talking about Invest Games Gaming Deals Activity Report for the first half of this year. And then finally, we'll be discussing Jam City Cancelled SPAC. And as a bonus segment, I am introducing something new. We will be playing the popular party game Would You Rather, but then about the gaming industry. That's going to be fantastic. Looking forward to that at the end. You always scare me, Nico, when you bring on new things, but it's a, I know. It's a good kind of scared. <laughs> exactly. We need, we need to keep things, you know, we need to keep you on edge, Aaron, otherwise you'll be too comfortable. All right. And so before we start, if you're an avid listener of the show, which you should be, you might have heard a new name in my intro, and that is Grigory Grisha Brutnik. Gr hey, Grisha is, uh, hey man, uh, is an investment associate at MGVC where he helped close more than 10 deals. And in addition to that, he's the editor-in-chief at InvestGame. And so together with Anton, who's also on the pod, he will, uh, well, he has provided us with the recently published deals report and he'll be giving us all the insights we need from, uh, from that. Gregory, welcome to the Metacast. Oh, thank, thank you, Nico. Grisha, what excites you about the gaming industry these days? Actually, for me, I really love gaming industry for almost probably 20 years. So probably I saw it from the start, how it's starting, you know, from just PC games and PS2 games. But for now, how it's developing and evolving to more mobiling and with current technologies. And you see how it, you know, developing. It's really cool. Uh -huh. yeah, I agree. It's super exciting, which is why it's so fun to do these things. You know, we're yeah. keeping up to date with all of that. It's amazing. All right. And so Grisha. What game are you currently playing? All right, so currently I'm playing Persona 5 Royal on PlayStation 4 Pro. And what game was that? Uh, Persona 5. Okay, awesome. All right, enjoying it? Yeah, really love it. But nice. still, it's like 70 hours of gameplay, so it's really hard you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to keep alive. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I mean, I, I love these good games where you're having fun and you know that there's still so much more to go, you know? There's still so much more to do. It's awesome. All right, let's get into today's topics. So topic one, Ubisoft's new strategy. So Ubisoft is a French gaming company. So actually it should be Ubisoft. Um, and it is known for video game franchises like For Honor, Assassin's Creed, Prince of Persia, Far Cry, and the Tom Clancy games. And so they have a history of making some great premium AAA games. But in last May, they reported a slight shift in their strategy. And from now on, Ubisoft plans on targeting 20% of their investments towards free-to-play games. And so executives have said that this will not have any impact on their premium titles, but in the end, every dollar that you spend on free-to-play is a dollar that does not get spent on premium titles. So there's 
definitely any like an effect there. Um, and so, yeah, let's discuss this. Aaron, you wrote about this in the last uh, Master of Meta newsletter. Why is Ubisoft doing this? Yeah, and happy to expand on it a bit more. I think this is ultimately about staying relevant and finding new ways to grow in an ever-evolving industry. And this isn't unique to Ubisoft either. We've we've known for years that free-to-play is big and continues to grow in importance. And like many leading publishers, Ubisoft has been pretty slow to prioritize free-to-play and then properly figure it out. So now they're playing catch-up and attacking it headfirst. Um, you know... Maybe it's partially a diversification move, but I think it really is more about growth. And at this point, much of the playbook is actually already written. Everyone has now seen Activision Blizzard in particular innovate on the Call of Duty business model. We're on top of maintaining the annual cadence of premium releases. They now support free-to-play on console, PC, and mobile through Warzone and Call of Duty Mobile. And the results of that have been really really good you know call mm -hmm. of duty has a larger more engaged audience with a wider surface area for monetization and upsells and it's still growing so you know as i view this the innovators did their job with this business model and now we're at the point of the cycle where the imitators come into mm -hmm. play um so now we see other companies ubisoft in particular but also ea and beyond you know they're going to be looking at their blockbuster premium ip and thinking about how they can grow their ecosystems and therefore their businesses by adding on new free-to-play experiences. Um, I'll, I'll also just quickly add that this isn't entirely new for Ubisoft. They launched Hyperscape last year, which was a free-to-play sci-fi battle royale game that <laughs> quickly died out. Um, they also mm -hmm. recently announced that Tom Clancy's Elite Squad, uh, a free-to-play action RPG um, that it launched last year, is additionally shutting down. So Ubisoft doesn't actually have a good track record here, but it seems like mm -hmm. the company is doubling down on its efforts and trying to build those free-to-play competencies, especially regarding their Tom Clancy IP, you know, which includes, you know, like sub-brands like The Division, Ghost Recon, and Rainbow Six. Mm -hmm. And so when you're saying it's looking for growth, do you think it's the strategy would be to attract new audiences through their existing premium titles? Because... Um, as many know, I've played Warzone for way too long, um, and there's definitely an advantage in that game to you know buy the full game, uh, either Modern Warfare or um, or Black Ops. Uh, do you think that's their strategy, or do they expect to make money specifically on microtransactions within that game as well, or a combination of both? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of both. I think you know, first and foremost, this is about you know evolving with the industry. And as there are more people playing more types of games around the world, this is a way to serve more people and bring more people into their ecosystem. Um, and then once they're into their ecosystem, they obviously want to engage them more. And so, you know, different people are different. Some people will want to go more deeply in just on mobile games. Some people will play a free-to-play um, game like we saw with Activision with Warzone and then want to upsell, you know, at higher rates than, than in the past. Um, so ultimately, I think you can measure it like they would still want each individual game they launch to have strong economics, but it ultimately is much more about building a stronger ecosystem where the economics around certain IP improve. And then, you know, on top of that, it's about like, all right, once you improve the economics of your IP, you're hopefully moving the needle for the company as a mm -hmm. whole. And then you can start to justify any opportunity cost of like, all right, you invested, you chose to invest in this over what you were doing in the past. Mm -hmm. Let's let's measure and make sure that it, it works out. Yeah, that's interesting. And so 
in terms of measuring, how, how would you approach that? Like, how would you define these types of, of new free-to-play games? Like, what would you be looking at when you made that um, to define whether it was successful or not? Um, so actually, I think it it might be worth, like, tackling, like, like what is key in making this successful, and then we can kind of talk about measurement. And I'm definitely curious what um, Anton and Grisha think about this, too. Um, the, the big caveat, of course, is that I've never built a successful free-to-play free to play game, so take my words with a grain of salt. Um, I can offer more of an organizational perspective, and I, I do wish Florian was here to, to complement these thoughts with more of the game design lens. So, yeah, hope yeah. you get feeling better, Florian. But, yes, <laughs> I think um, there are several layers that go into making a foray um, into free-to-play sustainably function and succeed. And um, remember, free-to-play can be console, mobile... Uh, PC cross-platform, and the type of platform obviously makes a huge difference to how a company approaches the opportunity. Um, but it starts with, with leadership. The first step is having the right people be able to pinpoint and double down on the right opportunities, being able to identify gaps in the market and have good judgment around the best uses of IP, uh, both existing IP and new IP. Um, with Ubisoft, they don't have a great track record, so maybe some of that could be put into question and maybe they can improve we'll see the other piece of this is having the company structure and org chart be set up to succeed so for example um for the longest time ea didn't have a head of mobile and there wasn't really a mobile business unit and in that case the company clearly wasn't prepared to succeed until it made big changes and only once it had a clear head and jeff carp did it begin accelerating the development of centralized um, functions like mobile UA that just like need to exist for, for a big company to succeed across the board on mobile. In Ubisoft's case, I'm, I'm really not an expert on their org chart. I don't really know, but I can almost guarantee mm -hmm. you that they'll, they will require some rejiggering of how decisions mm -hmm. get made and by who, plus who needs to build more robust teams around new capabilities. Um, and then obviously you have to fill that structure with leaders who can thrive. And what makes this complex is that not only does mobile need strong leadership and meaningful resources, but free-to-play extends to console and PC too, which means a heightened focus on live ops um, and mm -hmm. entirely new strategies when it comes to UA. So really it requires like heavy organization-wide changes, which can be hard, it is complex. And then once a company is properly structured, and its leaders have smart thoughts on what games it generally wants to make. It has to figure out how to actually make them in a way that will work. Um, last year, Manu and I, we, we wrote a long essay called How to Win Beyond Console, The Six Paths to Mobile um, on how historically console-based companies can begin to succeed in free-to-play mobile specifically. And the bulk of that essay was about knowing how to choose the right strategic path based on your company's strengths and weaknesses. And different paths are things like do you choose to do internal development, M&A, mm. IP licensing, co-development partnerships, et cetera? Um, and for big companies with multiple projects, it's not even really about choosing one, but rather about choosing which strategy applies best to each individual game. So mm. there are lots of layers to the decision-making just to get a company ready to succeed on any individual game, uh, much less like multiple games. Um, the very last thing I'll say is that you know, in Ubisoft's case, they have three free-to-play Tom Clancy games in the pipeline. They have the mm -hmm. Division Heartland, uh, which I think will be their version of Warzone, but we'll learn more. The Division Mobile, and then X Defiant, which is a recently announced arena shooter. Um, honestly, I'm skeptical 
that they'll all succeed. And the Division IP isn't nearly as strong as Call mm. of Duty. Um, but Heartland and X-Defiant are being developed internally, and I think the Division Mobile is actually being co-developed with Tencent. Um, so in my mind, that like that generally makes sense. I, I don't know if they like chose the right games necessarily to make, if all of them is where they should be focusing their time. But in terms of how they're going about making those games from like a strategic lens, um, it makes sense. Now, actually, mm-hmm. you know, the next step is in like making these games work on an individual level once you've picked your development strategy. And that's yet another layer mm-hmm. that I'm personally less equipped to speak about. But there's a lot that goes into an organizational shift like this. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways to measure, right? From the individual game to franchise ecosystems to, um, you know, the company as a whole. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty <laughs> pretty huge undertaking. And they don't have the best track record of succeeding with it. And so it makes sense why people have been skeptical. But, you know, mm-hmm. the flip side is that expectations have been pretty low um, <laughs> because of that. So they actually have a decent opportunity to top those expectations if they can, mm-hmm. you know, figure things out. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So uh, if I hear it correctly, it, small, relatively small strategic shift might have a big impact on the company as a whole. And it makes sense, the strategy, but execution is going to be key. Um, all right, interesting. Um, Anton, what, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on this? Well, Aaron has, you know, kind of extensively covered the the topic and I actually tend to agree with him and I also think that the execution would be key as usual um but what I think is that this is really not well it it, it is of course a wise decision but f- to me it's like mostly the inevitable decision because free to play is eating the world and what else um you have to do really you have to keep following that uh and you have to keep making mistakes and you have to diversify your portfolio um so yeah they have lots of pretty decent pretty famous ips and uh with the right expertise they might be just able to you know to have a game maybe not as successful as call of duty mobile um but still a war zone for that matter but you know they can still um they can still make a successful game in mobile and even if they do not and they have some mediocre mobile games this is still better than having no free to play mobile games at all in 2021 or 2022 hmm. how about you uh, Grisha? what do you think i agree with anton and aaron but we also should think about it from different perspective as such a big companies, electronic arts and Activision Blizzard, like continue to improving their current positions in mobile. For example, electronic arts, first of all, acquired Glue Mobile. Secondly, they want to, you know, uh, port their Apex Legend into mobile segment. And it's also probably one, one of a key uh, idea for them how to improve their mobile segments and for Ubisoft, it's not the first time that they go to free-to-play. First of all, it was the acquisition of two studios, it's the Green Panda Games and Calibre Games, both developing free-to-play mobile games. And currently, I think the main driver uh, was uh, Call of Duty Mobile. After Call of Duty Mobile, probably everything changed for big players. They saw that big IP, which was only on PC and console, could also, you know, make really good money and revenue streams from mobile and after that and if you 
currently you have like Division and Siege, like really good games with really good audience. And if you could move it to a mobile and make it free to play, you can earn also have really good revenue. And also, if you're talking about revenue, uh, and especially in free to play, it's also meaning you have really good retention of your games and really good audience base, not only like on daily basis and monthly basis. And you will, you know, keep your, your audience not for several months, but for years as uh, Cabbage Mobile doing it for, you know, worldwide currently. Yeah, I guess I would I would just add, I think that Ubisoft will probably have more success free-to-play on the console and PC side, since that's just like, that is where their bread and butter has been. I think we've seen in the past, they have had difficulties with live ops. Like, I remember Ghost Recon Breakpoint, like, like it was a flop, primarily because they just didn't have their their live live ops capabilities fully sorted out and i think it was a lesson learned they improved from it but you know as we've seen maybe more recently with like assassin's creed and other games like they have improved in that angle so they just need to figure out how to you know they've taken it up a level now they need to take it up yet another level for for free to play but they have the capabilities internally to to make these kinds of games it's more on the mobile side where i think like it's fair to ask questions and i think it's smart that you know at least for um the division mobile i think like they're partnering with tencent as a co-development partner who has a ton of success you know with timmy mm. um you know developing other free-to-play shooter games which seems like a wise move and tencent is a big shareholder uh, of ubisoft uh but yeah it's sort of beyond that where i sort of scratched my head a little bit i mean they had they did acquire calibri i i still don't know why they did that or how it fits into what the company just like i don't get the strategic rationale there at all and what so is that I, Calibri Games, they make like idle games, like Idle Miner, Tycoon, etc. Okay. Um, so yeah, completely different from like what they need yeah, for yeah. the Division or Assassin's Creed, right? Like uh-huh. very, very different. Um, and so yeah, when it comes to building free-to-play mobile games around their biggest IPs, I don't, I don't think they had, they have had the capabilities in-house to succeed at that. So that is where like they really need to be smart and think about setting the organization up to succeed first before they start just attacking any any new individual game in my opinion so we'll see mm-hmm. i i'm not super confident yet until we see more of that take shape but as i said expectations are pretty low so they they might be able to top them mm-hmm. that's true all right cool interesting yeah i think it's uh it might be time for uh our russian friends to talk to us about everything that happened in the past half year. So let's start discussing topic two, Invest Games Gaming Deals Activity Reports for the first half of this year. Um, and so instead of me doing my best to sound like I know what I'm talking about, why don't we let the, the experts do a little intro? Anton and Grisha, could you share with us a brief summary of your findings? Sure, sure, thank you. So yeah, before we start, I just want to say that I would love to see the you know the faces of Ubisoft uh, tops when they hear Aaron saying like the expectations are <laughs> really low. <laughs> they would love that, man. Um, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, uh, just look at sure. how they're trading public markets. Uh, I'm not the first one to think that. Sure, sure. Um, anyway. So yeah, what um, Invest Game does, apart from you know weekly digest, is that we uh, make global deal activity reports every quarter, and we've just got our first half of 2021 report out. So basically, there's a lot of numbers, and you can see that all for yourselves uh, on investgame.net if you haven't already. 
the biggest key takeaways that we got uh, are that the first half of 2021 showed 4x growth against uh, the same period of 2022 of the previous year on all fronts, so bids, private investments. Um, the numbers are $4.6 billion against uh, just, well, just $1.4 billion uh, in the first half of the last... And for uh, what was that? Just overall total... Yeah, so that that, that were private investments. Private uh, investments right? Public offerings also showed an amazing growth big, with uh, $17.1 billion against, again, I'm going to say just, but, you know, it's all comparative. $4.9 billion mm -hmm. uh, last year, uh, the first half, of course. And, of course, M&As, which showed the biggest growth, which is $22.4 billion in the first half of the year against just $4 billion mm -hmm. year over year. And um, overall, there were 471 uh, transactions closed in the period in question with a total deal value of, um, this is actually, this would be the biggest and the most important number of the report, I would say, which is uh, $44.2 billion. So that's the total deal value of all the closed transactions um, in the first half of the year. So yeah, that's the number. Mm -hmm. uh, Grisha will, you can see more in the report and Grisha will just, elaborate a bit on each particular deal type. So yeah, probably let's start through public offerings. Uh, as uh, Anton said before, this shows really good, strong growth and probably I just will uh, note the most uh, big deals for first half. It's of course, Billy uh, Billy Pipe for $2.6 billion, Iron Source Test Park for 2.3 billion dollars. Applavin and Playtic IPOs. If we're talking Applavin, they made 2 billion dollars and Playtic of 1.9. And it was like tremendous differences if we're talking about first half of 2020. And this year, probably, but I think the trend will continue here as already announced next spec and other potential IPOs will probably also shake the market. If you're talking about VC market here, we see maybe not such interesting K-line deals, but if you're talking about uh, overall number of deals and close deals and number of funds, which we also included in our you know report, you can see that more and more companies intend to you know invest in early stage in uh, small studios as it was like year before and year year before. And I think the trend also will continue here and uh, we can see that probably more funds will, you know, continue to be targeted only on uh, video game market. If we're talking about M&A activity, of course, the key and the biggest deal here was like uh, Zenimax, which was acquired by Microsoft for $7.5 billion. Uh, also Gloomobile, Gearbox, uh, which also was like really big deals in March. And of course, we do not forget about Moonton, uh, which was acquired for $4 billion. Overall, we not, could see not only the changes about the overall amount, but like every check and average deal, you know, amount is also uh, goes higher. And we see already several 
big deals which was announced first of course it's sumo digital which will be acquired by tencent and playdemic by electronic arts the both deals are big and in addition for example like last week we heard about netmarble which will be which requires pinks games for almost like 2.2 billion dollars and i think such big strategy investors as embracer will also shake the market in the second half interesting all right and so uh, as you guys describe it, there is tremendous growth on all fronts. Um, uh, so I, I'd like to have your guys' opinion on why that is. Like, what's happening? Is there something special? Is this because of COVID? Um, is this because of you know inflation and you know quantitative easing and easy money, low interest rates, or uh, what do you guys think? Well, you're right, of course, uh, saying that the pandemic has a lot to do with this, and we all know that gaming got a huge boost last year, and we're still seeing the some of the you know of the results of that pandemic and of the fact that lots and lots of people had to stay at home but um on the other hand, this is also just you know seeing that gaming is probably the best kind of entertainment right now all around the world, be it mobile console p c or whatever so this is one of the reasons of course, and people see and the funds and the strategic investors. All of them see that um, people will always play games and, mm -hmm. um, well, as soon as they have all their needs, uh, all their basic needs uh, satisfied, they will get down to playing the, you know, some, their favorite game on mobile. And this is just the result of it. And yeah, I believe that this trend will continue uh, both in 2021 and in the years to come. And we all have seen the you know the prognosis for the uh gaming market revenue exceeding 200 billion dollars in like four to five years i believe mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. aaron what are your thoughts yeah i mean i mean first of all i think you guys did a great job on the report and everyone interested in this should go check it out uh, there were, yeah a lot of really interesting details in there um but yeah, I mean, I think I would echo what Anton was saying. Obviously, COVID accelerated trends. It also accelerated just positive sentiment towards gaming companies, both public and private markets. And, you know, it's really created like a perfect environmental storm. You know, like those trends being a huge piece, but they're also like hitting at the same time that like other things are going on. So like, a lot of public companies are already <laughs> seeking heightened M&A for various purposes, whether it's, you know, you know, building mobile competencies, trying to maintain growth rates, building global exposure, building out a library of exclusives for their subscriptions or consoles and whatever, you, you know, whatever's going on. Um, and, you know, just being able to raise money at, at more favorable rates allows companies to also then use their own stock more favorably than in the past to strike deals. So, you know, I kind of look at it as like, it's a lot of favorable trends colliding at the same time um, mm. with the largest trend of all of them being the COVID acceleration mm. from the past. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. I mean, my key takeaway from the report is just, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's pretty wild, like how, how big of an upswing this change has been over the course yeah. of a year. Like I think last year, like we didn't necessarily, at least I didn't necessarily view like the transaction volume as like small, like it was still like, you know, pretty, pretty meaningful. And this mm -hmm. is just like that much more meaningful, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, 
it's pretty wild. Obviously, you can't extrapolate everything going forward, but I think you can definitely take some learnings and apply it to the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also should um, say that especially, uh, well, I think this will please Nico, the fact that the industry is experiencing the rise of blockchain-powered gaming. Oh, right. Yeah. It, it, we had to talk about it at some point, right? <laughs> so we're half an hour in. It took us half an hour before we touched upon it. And Anton, you did it. So I'm, I'm going yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, to... I know this. that. I acknowledge that. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay to talk about crypto gaming in every episode. So yeah, actually, crypto gaming companies closed 24 deals versus just 12 deals uh, year over year again. Mm. And the total value exceeded uh, $476 million. Um, well, with a 75% of the total sum coming from just three funding rounds. Uh, this was 40, Animoca, and Mythical Games. So yeah, uh, apart from the whole industry growing, apart, apart from the, you know, the M&As and IPOs and private transactions, we can also say that the blockchain uh gaming is on the rise and this will probably continue in the in in this year and probably in the next year as well Mm -hmm. yeah i think in addition from my perspective so i talk to quite a lot of european investors um and here in europe we have negative interest rates and quite a lot of banks are also like starting to charge like extra on top of that charges to bank accounts of over i think 250,000 euros or something and so what i've been hearing is that people are first chasing yield and also finding looking for ways uh, or places to put their money um, and I think that's also one of the reasons why VC funds uh, in the gaming space have been doing well gaming is one of the exciting spaces that have you know been able to grow during the pandemic um, and I think this is an, an acceleration of, of that movement uh, in addition with the, the the easy money and the you know the opportunity cost of, of keeping money in in a bank account um and, but my question is for you guys um when is this stopping like will we continue to see this tremendous growth uh, or will it slow down or will it come to a halt uh, is this a bubble what do you think i mean i don't think it'll stop but yeah i mean definitely pieces will have to slow you can't extrapolate you know mm-hmm. what's gone in this half forever but this still is a massive vibrant industry with a ton ton going on um mm-hmm. and i don't know i mean i also think that in the same way that you know covid driven acceleration was unpredictable. I think that a lot of future behavior will also be unpredictable too. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, but that said, you know, even though 2022 will probably be down from these highs in terms of deal count, I would guess. I actually do think that in some ways that even if the number of deals shrinks, the size of deals could actually increase. Um, And kind of where I'm coming from with that is that as growth and large publishers slows um they'll you know continue to be looking to accelerate you know their revenue by using their cash war chests that they've developed i think we've seen a lot of m a that's kind of been revolved around just building capabilities and there will be some of that um but i think we'll start to see companies put their war chests which are growing and you know worth billions to mm. to work um also you know as subscription services like game pass in particular scale I, I think we could see more Bethesda-like deals, uh, like genuinely. I, I don't think that is, you know, out of the question. And then also, you know, as big tech figures out its stance on games, we could see some mm. deals there too. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of tough to predict, but I mean, I, you could throw traditional entertainment in there as well, like maybe over mm. over the longer term, as I've 
as we've kind of talked about in the past. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think we could see more consolidation as, you know, subscriptions emerge and like large publishers looking for growth, like, you know, build up their cash reserves. Like there, there still will be like potential catalysts for why like ever bigger deals will happen. Um, these things will obviously hit at semi random times, but I think it's, I think it's possible. And then, you know, as for companies going public, again, sentiment ebbs and flows, but there are more means of doing so than, you know, was commonly accepted in the past, whether it's an IPO or SPAC or direct listing. So, and like new companies are always like new studios or whatnot are always being made. Um, so Mm -hmm. that will continue. That's not going to stop. Um, but yeah, there will be very difficult year over year comps. That's for sure. It's hard to, you know, top, top years when companies like Roblox are going public. Mm, so for sure. Yeah. Hey, make an interesting point. I think, um, what we'll see in the future is definitely more and more eyes on, you know, interactive entertainment, uh, and, and these type of traditional entertainment companies looking at games and also feel, um, you might, you guys might disagree. I think, and I don't know the numbers, but I feel like gaming is still one of the, um, like dollars spent per hour enjoyed is still like very low. Is that correct? You guys know not any really. numbers like uh, you don't? It's not true, uh, Grisha. Yeah, it's not true. It's mostly depends on the game, of course. If we're talking about free-to-play mm-hmm. games, uh, there is like some average checks. It could be I don't know, like per month, it could be two hundred dollars. Could be more. It could be less. It depends on the game and, of course, an audience. Uh, for some games, it's more. But some games not. For example, for Coin Master, if we're talking about some players, there like average check is high. Like average like spending on the game is really high. But some games is lower, uh-huh. but still there's like lots of players, so it's kind of questionable. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends, Nico. I mean, I think like compared to like you know going to a movie theater or something, games are mm-hmm. you know a much much better value. But you also see mm-hmm. in like more traditional entertainment, like Netflix is offering like better and better value too. So I think it is getting more competitive for time spent mm-hmm. per game, and it is different depending on the game. But yeah, there there's tons of opportunity for games to get better at you know adding more value through mm. live ops or uh, what what have you roblox you know dramatically like has room to dramatically improve their monetization we'll see more similar types of platforms and companies working on different stuff to improve too um that doesn't necessarily mean they always should be sque- trying to squeeze out that much from from gamers but I agree. there definitely is room to to grow the grow the pie Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, tell it to the to the top gaming companies that you didn't have to squeeze the gamers. <laughs> but True, man. yeah, that's that's basically one of the reasons you see these tremendous growth uh, of the market and of the deals because lots and more and more people are seeing that gaming is the cheapest way to entertain yourself per hour. Because as Aaron has just said, right now, even if there is no pandemic right you still have to spend like a significant amount of money to go to the movie theater or to the concert or you know um this kind of thing but in comparison to that you can just take out your smartphone and open up some free-to-play game and you don't even have to um spend money there all right to enjoy it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah that's one of the like most profound reasons i would say that gaming has a bright future both in terms of you know the the product metrics and the business side of it, mm-hmm. and just add some interesting. If we talk about just gaming companies, but they probably a bit forget about 
uh, like normal entertainment companies, as for example Netflix, they are currently looking to you know how to boost their growth and how they want to make it going to gaming. Same for Amazon with you. They're like a gaming division and new game, new world, which shows really good results on Steam based on their current like information use. And mm-hmm. this is new segment for them. And if we look into other companies, which is entertainment, probably a lot of them look into gaming as a really good possibility to boost their growth and, you know, got their revenue share from that. Yeah, everyone's getting into this stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see when this you know, growth in activities slows down. And we might have seen one first sign of that, which brings us to our next topic, which is Jam City, which canceled its SPAC. So um, let's uh, let's start. And so uh, usually I, I do intros for all this stuff. And so now I have to confess that I actually, I never play mobile games. Actually, it's not completely true. I only play mobile games when Florian recommends them to me. And so for those, the uglier they are, the better. Uh, so until recently, I actually have never heard of Jam City. Um, and so assuming that I'm not literally the only one who knows nothing about Jam City, allow me to give a short intro to what the company does. Uh, I did my research. I have to do a lot of research for these things, not to sound like a, like a complete noob. Anyway, Jam City was founded in 2010 with a mission to provide unique and deeply engaging mobile games to people across the globe. And so their successes include Cookie Jam, which I've never heard of, but which made more than a half a billion dollars, and Panda Pop, which I also never heard of, which has more than 140 million downloads to date, which is uh, 2% of the world population. Insane. Um, and so Jam City is next to these mobile games, is also known for their close ties to Hollywood, uh, which has allowed them to develop games around some of the biggest entertainment brands. Um, and the biggest example of this is Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery which was the number one game in over 40 countries at its launch. And so over the past years, Jam City has been fueling its growth through M&A. Um, and this May, it announced to go public through a SPAC at a valuation of $1.2 billion. And so part of that deal was um, also the acquisition of Ludia for $175 million. And Ludia is a Canadian mobile games publisher that has found successes with building games around very known brands like Jurassic Park and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. However, last week we heard that both Jam City and the SPAC, it would be merging with mutually agreed to not continue with the process based on, as they said, current market conditions. So um, my question is, uh, what does that mean? So uh, Aaron, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and I think uh, not everything about this is super publicly transparent, so you have to read between the lines a little bit to take a guess on what exactly is happening. But I I think it might actually be worth taking a step back (laughs) for a moment and just clarifying, you know, like what a SPAC is, how it works, and then connect that back to Jam City, because I think it Mm -hmm. actually is important in this case. Um, So in short, you know, special purpose acquisition companies exist purely to buy and merge with other companies. Every SPAC is started by a sponsor, which then IPOs what is essentially a shell company, raises capital from the public markets on the premise that it will strike some great value additive deal. Um, The company then has a year or two to lock down an acquisition, in which case it merges with another company. And the acquiree can then bypass, you know, the burdensome IPO process, and it still effectively raises capital in the end. And, you know, that's when it works. And of course, not all SPACs are, you know, you know, make it to the finish line or are Mm -hmm. created equally. What, what people don't talk enough about, though, is that getting to the finish line is more difficult than it may appear. 
Um, so first, obviously, its sponsor has to convince a company that wants to go public that it should work with them. And then once a company and the sponsor agree on terms, shareholders on both sides have to approve. And executing a successful proxy solicitation plan in a SPAC is is hard. Um, you know, mm. for one, the execution itself is hard, but also public markets are, are generally pretty shrewd and will will vote against bad deals, whether it's a mm-hmm. you know a bad company or just simply overpriced. And sometimes even when there is approval, like troubles can still arise. So many SPAC deals do fall apart along the way. Um, so what does that mean for Jam City? Uh, well, to start, Jam City in their press release says that they're mutually terminating the transaction because of market conditions. Um, now, we just spent <laughs> several minutes talking about how market conditions have been mostly great, uh, you mm-hmm. know, this so far this year for great companies. Um, yes, most gaming securities are not trading at the same lofty highs that they were maybe a quarter ago. And, you know, some overhyped IPOs didn't have amazing debuts because they priced themselves too high. Um, but there still is like appetite for good, solid opportunities. And the best businesses are still very much being valued at premiums. So in my opinion, the reason is is mostly BS. Maybe people disagree with me, but I, I, that's what <laughs> I think. And what is more likely is that investors of the SPAC vehicle didn't rally behind or necessarily want to own Jam City at whatever lofty premium there was. Mm. So in other words, and there's slight nuance there, but in other words, the issue likely stems from investors not easily buying into management's heightened expectations for Jam in particular, mm-hmm. not the broader market where the best companies are still openly accepted. Um, and then just as one one final heuristic, you know, the higher valuations rise across the board, the more important it is to raise the bar on quality. And when the bar mm-hmm. is raised, it's harder for more companies, including Jam City, uh, to raise money and debut as they please. So that's that's kind of my take on what happened here um mm-hmm. still still a lot more to dig into you know jam city and ludia itself but yeah specs specs aren't perfect they, they could be tricky sometimes mm, yeah for sure i mean i always find it weird that there's a reason why getting listed is hard right there's a reason and i feel like specs bypass it almost too fast and to make it too easy yeah i'm always more careful when you know considering investment in a spec than i would do in a in, a, in something else uh, Anton and, and Grisha, what do you think? Well, to me personally, I'm uh, I, I can't say that uh, I thoroughly know what's the situation behind the you know the cancellation of this puck, but I'd say that this is the you know the dark side of the process we have just been discussing. That as gaming becomes more and more popular around the world. Uh, from the business side as well, um, some people are trying to get in there just to, you know, allocate capital and to get profits of it without fully understanding the production side of uh, the industry and the exact processes and measures to be taken to succeed. And I'm not saying that the guys in this particular deal are like this, but I would say that this also happens. And another example of that is the share prices of the companies who have recently IPO'd. And they also some of them are not are also not performing well. And I would say that even if we're seeing the growth on all sides of the 
you know of the of the gaming market uh this does not mean that any particular company uh especially if it's not like the top uh of the chain of the food chain will succeed because you still have to know the the ways to success on the market and well again i'm not sure what exactly is the reason behind this one but my wild guess is that the guys have just seen the product metrics decline and maybe not maybe not decline but not performing as promised so yeah that mm -hmm. might probably be the major reason for that mm -hmm. yeah and so um i read an interview with um one of the founders of the company or one of the executives of the company and he said that uh, Jam City was still considering to go public still. And so Aaron, you're saying, uh, and Anton, you're saying too, that they might have a hard time because of uh, the high bar that was set for, uh, because of the, the, the great quality in average in, in companies in, in the gaming space. Um, how do you think they'll proceed? Do you think the valuation will go down or uh, what's going to happen there? So I think the SPAC transaction, Matt Dion covered this back in May and master the meta when um, the SPAC and, you know, potential M&A of Ludia was announced. Uh, the mm -hmm. transaction, I think, was valued at $1.2 And the combined mm -hmm. companies, I think, had uh, $570 million in bookings, but like $30 million in adjusted EBITDA, I want to say, for mm -hmm. last year. You know, it seems reasonable on a booking standpoint, but that's pretty yeah. low low margins. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that if they want to do something, they might need to reset expectations. Um, maybe that's okay. I mean, they could do whatever they want, right? Like public markets are, are harsher and less forgiving. Um, but if they have confidence that their business can deliver strong fundamental performance and then, you know, win over certain investors and all power to them. And I, I still suspect that they want to raise capital primarily mm -hmm. in order to acquire Ludia. Um, mm -hmm. And they might, you know, think that their odds or terms um, would be better going public than raising more money from, you know, VCs or whoever that would probably want more, want more growth or control. Um, mm -hmm. I honestly don't have a perfect take on Jam City's prospects in order to comment on that or what they have in the pipeline. But yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that they would still want to do what they set out to do, just find a different path to do it and mm -hmm. adjust accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, we hear soon of a new spec with a slightly lower valuation. Let's uh, let's see what happens. All right, let's um, round up the serious stuff and let's start getting into the party games stuff. Let's play Would You Rather. So basically what I'm going to do is, what I did, is I prepared for each of you two questions. And it's going to be, would you rather this or that? And so you have to pick. You have to pick, no choice. And then you can, if you want, give a small explanation on why you picked. And I'm starting with Aaron. Are you ready, Aaron? Hit right. me. Aaron, would you rather never play an Activision Blizzard game or never play a Take-Two interactive game? Um, let's see. I would... I would probably never play an Activision Blizzard game because I freaking love Rockstar. I yeah. I I need Rockstar. Any game they put out, I will absolutely play it, no exceptions. And I think that they will continue to stay stay awesome. Um yeah. also I like NBA 2K, so that'll be like a nice one to keep on 
plan occasionally, but yeah, yeah, all because of Rockstar. Rocks, okay, yeah. I would. I think if you had asked me this like five years ago, I would have said like, "Oh, Blizzard. Okay, you know, I'm sold. Just give me, give me Blizzard. That's all I need now today. Not so sure anymore. Anyway, next is gonna be Grisha. All right, Grisha. Would you rather only play free to play games or only play premium games? It's probably hardcore player. I will choose premium games. Premium games, because yeah. you have the money, you're willing to spend big on some quality <laughs> content. All right, I would have said the same. Anton, would you rather only play VR games or never play VR games? <laughs> <laughs> That's the easiest one, man. I'd Tell rather, me. I would rather never play VR games. Man, yeah. Haven't cause... you heard of the metaverse? <laughs> oh, what is that? Dude, what is that, Nico? I mean, haven't you heard about the Zuckerverse? You know, we're like in 10 years, we're all sitting on our couch all day, working in VR, meeting people in VR, playing games in VR, hanging sure. out in VR. Um, and you're going to be, you know, sitting on your couch, like on your PC, like, guys, what's happening? There's no one to play, I don't know, Call of Duty with me. Yeah, playing my PlayStation 5, exactly. uh, AAA, mm, yeah, premium, premium, premium take two interactive releases. Yeah. I'm going to say, all I right. think that might be a, a short-sighted answer. In 30 years, we're all going to be Man. having a great life in VR, and you're just going to exactly. be... Sure. You'll sure. be missing Anthony, out. But okay. Nico, Nico has said never play VR games. He's never mentioned doing anything else on VR. Uh, right? That's true. true. That's true. Oh, shit. Anton really listens. Okay. I'm going to have to start like, reformulating my questions very exactly. Okay. <laughs> very good. Aaron, you're up next. Okay, would you rather be VP of games at Netflix or VP of games at Disney? <laughs> uh, okay, that's a, that's an interesting one. I'm going to say Netflix because I think if I were VP at games... So if I were VP at games at Disney, I think theoretically the opportunity would be larger, but it just yeah. there would not be success because the organization would not support it mm. um, right now. So maybe if you yeah. asked me in like five years, maybe the answer would yeah, change. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Netflix seems to be pretty pretty serious about doing something. Yeah. So I would go to the company that's serious about making yeah. making something happen where I don't have to only strike licensing deals, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you would have like more support at Netflix, but the potential of Netflix, of Disney is probably greater. Yeah, I mean, their IP yeah. is insane. So Exactly. Imagine uh, that the next week there's a news flash that Disney yeah. buys Electronic Arts or some something like that. <laughs> yeah, I've, here first, I've had guys. regrets in my theoretical <laughs> theoretical world where I'm VP at any of these places. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Aaron's going to be dreaming of this. All right, <laughs> next, Grisha, Europe. Would you rather take Epic Games public or orchestrate an acquisition of EA by Tencent? Small disclaimer, it's not a recommendation for market or any investors, <laughs> but I will probably choose there Epic we go. Games. We've got that behind us. <laughs> what, what do you say? I will choose Epic Games. I think because of current probably situation of like Tencent and China and yeah. US market, and it will be really hard from government perspective. And it's a really challenge, man. Execute. I just channel But, you know, we can't make it anything from this. But Epic Games, if they like potential relation, it will be really interesting to me. Yeah. Cool. All right. And then our last question, which is for Anton. Anton, would you rather own the rarest Axie from Axie Infinity or the rarest Pokemon card? Ah, man. You know my attitude to, you know, to NFTs and Axes. But 
to be quite honest, I'm not a big fan of, you know, the Niantix game. So, I'd still say the Pokemon card, but this one is probably the hardest ones out of all the questions you've, you've asked. <laughs> yeah, I'm too late. Actually, let me see if I can if I can find the highest price for an Axie, but I think you're going to make more money getting the rarest Axie than you would have with the, the rarest Pokemon cards. But that might be temporary, right? Because this is NFT bubble. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I, I see... I was looking at just just fun facts as we're talking about this. The most expensive Pokemon card is two hundred sold for two hundred and twenty four thousand dollars. I think maybe that, peanuts. Maybe that's right. Peanuts. I think the most expensive Axie, like the legit Axie, because there's a lot of people putting their you know Axie for sale for ten thousand ETH, uh, which is like twenty six billion or a million dollars. I don't know, um, way too much. Uh, but I think legit you can get like half a million. Uh, they would sell for half a million. Yeah, and I think that Pokemon card one is low too. I bet. I bet it's gone up a lot since whatever that was. Mm, probably, yeah. Yeah, but even if I had an Axie card, I'd still have to be able to open Axie Infinity from Russia. That's true. It still doesn't work, or? Uh, let me find out. Let's go. It does not work. It does it's not, not work. work. All right, yeah. so because Anton cannot play Axie Infinity, he will forego the extra dollars, the extra big bucks from the Axie and instead go for the Pokemon card. Awesome. All right. That uh, rounds up the episode. That's everything for today. Thank you very much, uh, Grisha, Anton, and Aaron. It was uh, great having you guys. Yeah, thanks for having us, Nico. Listener, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a five-star rating, uh, give us a comment, and subscribe to the show. And for more content about the business of games, visit Navic.co. Um, we're also uh, actually actively looking for you guys to share like questions and comments we've received some emails and we're going to be discussing those soon uh but please it'd be great if we have some some questions and and some subjects that you guys want us to talk about that we can uh can give you some insights on um also if you want us to please talk more about play to earn then just also let us know you can always send an email to metacost at navic.co and you can also find us on linkedin and twitter this was the metacost by navic and we look forward to speaking to you next week Cheers. thank you